Welcome to the Aerospace Executive Podcast, featuring in-depth conversations with executives, leaders, influencers, and journalists in this dynamic, high-stakes industry. Hosted by Craig Pickett, founder of Northstar Group, the boutique executive search firm for the aerospace industry. You'll learn how top aerospace executives are developing their people, competing for talent, overcoming challenges, and adjusting to industry trends to drive growth and profits. And now, let's join your host, Craig Pickett. Hey, welcome to the uh, Aerospace Executive Podcast. As always, I'm Craig Pickett. Today, I'm here with uh, Alex Vorobiev. Alex is a, a CPA, a turnaround CFO, an accomplished author of the book, Transform Your Company, and podcast and radio host of a show called Confident ROI. For the last several years, he's been helping companies improve their business processes and entrepreneurs find their, find their right direction. Alex, how are you today? I'm doing great, great, Craig, and you? I'm doing well. It's a, it's a good day here in Carolina once the rain stops. Um, what's happening out west? Well, we have water here in Idaho, which is good. But, uh, <laughs> I, think, I think parts of it are on fire. There you go. Uh, it's the, it is the, uh, it is the season, right? It is. It's part of nature. There you go. Hey, so you've been out. You, know, you wrote your book, Transform Your Company. And now you've got your uh, your radio show and uh, and podcast, and you're helping uh, you're just helping people, you know, muddle through the uh, you, you you get through the struggles of running complicated businesses. What uh, what drove you to writing the book and starting the radio show? Sure, it was. I started as as you mentioned, my background as a CPA, and then doing cleanup CFO work, and I liked figuring things out. I like numbers. And so it was, that was what was required, but it was easy to, what I found was easy to get my arms around the numbers and figure out where companies making money or not making money. But that I was just dealing with the symptoms inevitably with companies that were, that had financial issues. It was something deeper. There was something wrong. And it took me a while to kind of figure it out, but it, it kind of boiled down to you know, typically there was disagreement on in answers to important questions. Uh, why does the company exist? What's most important right now? Who's responsible for what? A lot of times these questions weren't answered or they're answered differently, which created dysfunction. And that there were a lot of business concepts and tools out there to improve businesses but it's overwhelming for a business owner. You know, where do they start? If they go to a CEO round table and they hear a speaker, the speakers are really good at identifying pain points, but is that the pain point that this company should start with? And so that's what got me working on how to bring some order and structure, all these business improvement tools, and where's a logical place to start, what works, what doesn't work, so that companies can really deal with the root cause of problems and not just the symptoms that come out at the number level. I think I, I, I read this book not too long ago, and it was, uh, I think it was called Extreme Ownership. And it was written by, uh, written by a Navy SEAL, and he, and, and he talked well, I, I, I just bringed up his name. 
but he talked about you know, really taking ownership of your, you know, yourself. And if things are going wrong, you know, what are you doing to either make it right or what are you doing to make it wrong? And then correcting yourself first, you know, when a business is struggling, does it, does it start at the top or is it down at the bottom or is it a, a, you know, a variety of things? Well, the, the fish stinks from the head and it's, it's, there's rarely been cases where it's been flipped the opposite, where the, the bottom of the company fixed itself and then the last part of the company was to fix the, the top part. So there's a reason why some of those memes uh, resonate because it really, at the end of the day, how do you change something if, if um, the leader doesn't think it's an issue? And that's what, what I found oftentimes is really the leadership having an accurate, accurate assessment and view of, of the current situation and willing to, to question assumptions, willing to change things. And a, a lot of times what it'll be is there'll be an emotional no-fly zones. This is aerospace, so you guys will understand no-fly zones. But within companies, there's often no-fly zones. You don't bring up the fact that maybe this person or this department is struggling or the product isn't as good as it once was, or we got a pricing issue. That's just, it's off limits for some reason. And it's up to leadership to go there and to, to deal with it and to, and to make the change. Are leaders willing to accept, you know, are willing, are leaders willing to accept you know, that kind of, uh, you know, when you, when you put it back on them, do they, you know, are, are they willing to, to, to take it, take the reins and fix it? Or do they, do they have to be dragged kicking and screaming? Well, it's, it's, you have to look at our, I've been going down the rabbit hole. Initially I wrote the book just to define what I felt was a missing area of business improvement tools called business alignment tools things like EOS traction, scaling up, the E-Myth. Uh, there's a number of tools out there that just help people get on the same page. Mm-hmm. But what I found was they were all really tools to get people to answer important questions and then coordinate actions so that you could figure out what do you expect to happen. But inevitably, you wouldn't get ideal results the first quarter in. You'd have to adjust things. And that's where you get into... To the how we're wired in our brains is we're wired to look for confirming evidence because we process so much information. We process 11 million bytes of information per second, but our conscious brain only processes 40 of those. So it's under non-consciously autopilot, we're processing things below the surface. For us to, to question our assumptions, to to look at things differently, that requires energy and that requires time, which our brain doesn't want to use. Mm-hmm. And so we're kind of wired not to want to examine things. And the if you take like Jim Collins' work, I think if you look at all those leaders he found, they had a really good relationship with feedback. They could just, and a lot of times they were, they were quasi or if not full outsiders. They were just looking for the right answer, and they weren't married to, they weren't uh, certain products or ideas. They were looking for that right answer. So in some ways, they were freed up to, to question assumptions. 
Mm -hmm. So you, it, it's it's you know, don't tell me what you think. Bring me the data to back it up. Yeah, it's um, there's really an interesting story that uh, I don't know if we have time, but um, within aerospace, uh, some of your listeners might know John Boyd, who was a colonel in the Air Force, and he really his there's a book called Boyd that really brings to light the some of the tools he developed to use feedback to gain an advantage as a fighter pilot. But he also questioned a lot of what the, the military industrial complex was doing and they didn't like it, but he questioned things in terms of the, the products they were building and were they really beneficial? And it created, it's a great human interest story from how to handle feedback, how to gain an advantage but also when that person can't handle it themselves, doesn't handle it themselves well. Interesting. So, you know, you know I, I saw on one of your Confident ROI um, podcasts, you, you talked about data a lot. What, you know, what do you, what's your best, um, you know, what's your best method to give feedback to a leader in your business? I mean, if it's the pricing's too high or the quality of the product is not good or the market is changing, What's what's the best tools to give feedback? Is it is it just simple data? Is it uh, you know, you know, sort of here's what the you know customer feedback or is it is it a variety of things? How does a company you know, how does a subordinate know to go to a leader and say, look, we got a problem, and and here's how I know it? Well, it depends, right? One of the things I I talk about in the book is just to start get an assessment of your relationship with feedback. And by listening to yourself, when, when things don't go according to plan, if projects late or something's over budget or a deadline's missed, um, how do you respond to it? Do you respond with questions like, okay, what, what happened here? Where did it go off track? What can we do different next time? Or is it more statement oriented, like, ah, oh, this always happens or this, this, this is always a problem? If you're asking questions, then it's easier for people to give you information. If you're making statements like, oh, you guys are always late and you never get it right, it's not easy for a subordinate to say, hey, we're having problems with this. Can we take a look at how we're gathering the data next time? Because that'll help us get it done quicker. So it's it's the, the mindset of the leaders essential that it's allowing information to come up. And it, again, it ties in with the neuroscience of, of people and whether or not they feel safe to, to say what they're feeling. Yeah, I got you. Yeah, I work with a lot of entrepreneurs. And one of the challenges in working with entrepreneurs is they have a hard time letting go. Have, you know, they hire smart people. Um, they realize that the business is outgrowing them. They hire smart people, but then they don't necessarily let them do what they were hired to do. Do you do you run into that yeah, all the time? Frequently, and, yeah. And it, it really comes out when they start to hire what I call the horsepower people with experience and expertise that I call human power. When you start bringing in those type of of people, they're typically a players, and they want to get stuff done. And what, what it brings out, it's never when an entrepreneur is, is growing their business, a lot of times it's in their head. 
everyone's watching them. They're in one room or one facility. They can, they can, they're always in line of sight. But when you start bringing in, in the, the horsepower, they're going to be doing things. They're moving quick as well. And so what brings out is different things that haven't been articulated by the leader. And the leader might not really have it down in terms of well, why does this company exist? What do we really do? Uh, what's important for us to succeed? The leader can kind of assume a lot of times with his original tribe that they get it because they've been watching him. But when they bring in someone from the outside who brings in experience and expertise, they don't necessarily, they're not necessarily going to pick up on it and they're not necessarily going to think it's right. So if it hasn't been articulated, these are really essential. These will always be important. Then it comes out as a problem. It's funny. One example is it comes out in so many entrepreneurial businesses the day after Thanksgiving. So many entrepreneurial businesses, they work it. Even when they've become nine-figure businesses, hey, we always worked it. We're going to work it. And they bring in somebody who's a, some been worked at bigger companies, that's a, that's a right. That's a, that you get the Friday after Thanksgiving off, right? Right. And it creates this, this tension because not only does this new hire think they get it off, but they've told their subordinates they get it off. And it's, and it's kind of against the, the, the credo in the, in the inside of the company is, hey, we're always going to think of ourselves as a startup we don't get the extra day off. We need that. We need that day to prepare for next year. And so that's one of those things where define it ahead of time. What's important that the leader getting it out of him or her, because inevitably a senior person's not going to know what you're thinking. Yeah. You know, I worked with a guy um, and I still remember the conversation I had with him vividly. He was the CFO, or I'm sorry, the COO of a mid-sized company, small to mid-sized company, maybe $100 million in revenue. And I said, why did, you, why did you leave there? And he said, hey, look, it was an interesting dynamic. The company was started by a bunch of ex-fighter pilots, and they, needed, they felt like they needed process and procedure. So I came there, and I put in process and procedure. And then they, did, then they felt like, hey, look, the process and procedure is for everybody else but us, which was killing everything. How do you know if you're walking into you know, that rabbit hole? Um, yeah, if you're, if you're, you know, are these guys ready for me? Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things is, is the core values of a company. You know, in, in so many interviews, right, they ask you, you got any questions of us? And that's, that's really the golden, the golden ticket to ask similar questions to different people in the organization, see if they line up on that. But core values, they only work. If you look at books like uh, Built on Values or, or Tribal Leadership, they only work if the leaders live them and, you, and they're, they're their core values. Otherwise, they're, they're, they're dead words on a wall. And finding out whether or not they're, they're committed to that is, is essential on, on the beginning. You know, to implement processes in that, it's got to be from the top. 
they got to, they got to embrace it. And if they don't want to embrace it, it's better off to know that early on than not. Do enough companies know their core values? I mean, you think, let's, let's just talk about, you know, let's talk about, you know, companies out there, Apple, Apple, I think knows its core values, Amazon, GE, do these companies really, as big as they are, understand their core values? Or then you take a small company and, and, and do, they, do they understand what they're really trying to do? You know, can, they, you know, can they verbalize it? And well, yeah, you can, you can have it memorized and you can put it on the wall and you can have that. And I think it's, it's a lot of times it's a mix, depending on the company, a mix of core values and purpose. Why does the company exist? But some are way to articulate what what's important to be how how should we behave and what are we trying to do why are we trying to do it and and however they do it helps kind of triangulate their their um their position their way to coordinate their actions and that's where asking a company when you're coming in the the companies that really use core values your the whole interview process is to see if you you are a cultural fit. Will you behave? Do you have, is there a track record of you behaving in that way? So if you're getting an interview that's not focused on how you behave and how you handle things and what's important to you, and it's just purely on what you do and what were the, the numbers you produced, that's probably a sign that make core values aren't, aren't alive in the organization. But, and if you don't get them in the interview, ask them about it. And if you ask two to three executives individually about the core values and you get, you get varying answers, then they're not on the same page. They're not alive. Is that a, I mean, is that a death trap? Is that, you know, ultimately when you talk about companies, you know, talking to can, you know, executives about the values they bring to the table. I mean, I guess past, past performance is a pretty good predictor of future performance. So that, that plays a big, plays a big part of it. How well, do you know? How do you know if somebody's a good, you know, a good, uh, you know, how do you know if they're going to be a good cultural fit? Well, and that's that's where an interview process you know, one is to define your core values. You know, before you get in the interview, what what are the important core values you're trying to hire on? And hiring on behaviors is far more important than hiring on on trainable skills. So one is you got to do the homework ahead of time and that you understand what the important core values are. And then two, asking for and doing structured interviews that really focus on specific examples of how they've, they've dealt with, with situations and see if it, if it matches their core values. Do you think enough executives know their own personal core values? I mean, say I'm walking into a job interview and they say, hey, what are your core values? Yeah. Do you think, do you, do you really, you know, I, I'm sitting there going, okay, what are my core values? You know, it's, you know, I work hard. I try to get along. I try to do the best I can, et cetera. But do you think enough people really think about what their own personal core values are walking into an interview? And should they focus on that more? Well, it depends on the company. You know, for the majority of companies, core values are not driving it. It's a smaller, smaller sliver of, of the overall population set. So it, it hasn't been, it hasn't been something that's required. Now, tangentially, I, I see us, the society, we're, we're moving to this phase of 
look, we, we got enough food, we have enough resources, we got a roof over our head, but we're still, still not quite right. I think we're in this phase of how to live better, how to liberate our lives, how to liberate companies. And I think that's the phase we're moving towards in doing this stopping and thinking about what is important, um, what, what do you value? And the millennials get a ton of blowback, but they're asking, you know, why does this company exist? Is it, you know, is it doing something that's important for the, with my beliefs and my values? And they're, they're making companies define these things. So they're, and they're more aligned with their companies once they agree to work with them than, than my generation who just wanted a job. Yeah. And, and everybody's saying that now about the millennials and it's, it's not a bad thing, but it's, if you want them to do a, a, you know, a really good outstanding job, you have to show them what the purpose of the mission is. You know, if you're just focusing on ROI and return on sales and the, you know, and all the KPIs, you know, they'll meet you with blank stares. But if you talk to them about where you want to be and what the mission and the goal really is, and it has a purpose, you get their attention. And I think, you know, I'm I'm clearly a boomer and that's something I'm learning every day. But it's, it's so much more beneficial because if you have a leadership team that has different views about what's important and different values, that's how thiefdoms develop. You know, hey, we're, we, we're, we're this group and these are what's important to us. And you end up worrying which one, uh, either below the surface or outright in terms of which one's going to win out. Yeah, I hear you. So, you know, let's talk about leadership a little bit. Um, you know, it, it's the big buzzword now is, you know, it's, it's all about being a leader. And, you know, Jim Collins, uh, the level five leader versus the, the level one individual contributor. You know, how are people finding that, that starting point as a leader in their organization? Do they, they come in and is it just you know, taking on everything they can and stepping up to the plate or is it something different? Well, I think it's a little overwhelming for people in terms of there's so many ideas and you got to hit the level five and you got to do this and you got to hit your numbers and, and, and you got to do all these things versus how best to apply the, that supercomputer in your head and develop better skills, better wisdom that over time is going to uh, produce good results. And that it's almost that the need to slow down and develop into asking the important questions, having that curiosity, not being a slave to hitting deadlines and numbers, but the discipline to trying to figure out you know, what, what is going to work? What is the right answer? Asking that question, going back to the, to the team or to the, to the boss and saying, hey, you know, I know this was the direction and this, is, this was the objective, but here's what we found. Do we want, you know, should we adjust? What, how should we take this into account? And you know, I've been guilty of it early in my career. Hey, here's the objective. Go do it. Well, you, you kind of get into it and like, hey, this, this is kind of a problem. Well, I got to meet this objective and this timeline. Forget about it. And that's not going to develop the, the skills to ask important questions and deal with feedback that, you know, it doesn't, 
doesn't line up with the assumptions with what the organization had. I just had someone on my podcast and he does data analysis. He's a data scientist. And I asked him, you know, how often do you do you do projects where it comes back with different results than they expected and, and do they accept those? And he just started laughing. He's like, most of the time the data comes back different than what they expected. And most of the time they don't want to accept it. And, and that's just our standard, you know, we're, we're kind of set towards that. Our brain wants information that confirms our beliefs and it develop, it's a skill to override that. Yeah. It takes time. It's funny with the data, you know, and the, and the data thing is it, it can be a double-edged sword. Um, I worked with one company and they, they were looking at, you know, they're sort of doing projections and they picked a random number to start with. Mm-hmm. And they said, okay, we're going to do all our projections and we're going to start with, you know, the number four. And then someone from finance comes in and kind of looks at their projections and they're, they're trying to get the, the budget done for the next year. And they said, okay, why did you start with four? And the VP of sales just looked at him and said, well, it just seemed like a you know, good logical place to start. And, you know, you could, you could pull anything out of thin air. So, you know, the, ultimately the data, you know, the data you use has got to be, it's got to find a good starting point. So it's, it's, uh, you're, you're, you mentioned it, you're, you're, you're right on. It's, you know, data can be a useful tool provided, you know, you, you, you start in the right place and yes, it's going to come back different if you don't start in the right place from what you expect. Yes. And, and, and you also take into account the, the, finance and the sales sitting down to work together on their projections. If they, if they feel safe in terms of having that question and answer period, not like, Oh, the finance guy is attacking me for my number. And he, he's going to go tell the boss that, you know, we're, we're, our, our projections are unrealistic or whatever. We're sandbagging versus, Hey, we're just trying to get to the right number. That, that kind of essential, it doesn't really matter then, right? You just, two, if the people are trying to find the best answer that's supportable, and you know, ironically, like uh, Taleb and um, Nassim Taleb, you know, a lot of stuff is so random in terms of what, it's so hard to predict things. You know, sometimes a random number is not a bad place to start. Right? <laughs> you know, it gets you a starting and talking point and, and a chance to, to find what is, what is a, a better number. Well, that's a good, well, that's always a good, like you said, a random number is not, it's a good place to start because it gets people thinking. You're like, all right, look, how much are we going to sell next year? I don't know. know, What did we sell this year? You know, know, that's a good place to start. How much did we sell this year? Okay. Well, well, you know, can we, you know, can we bolster it by 10%? Well, let's, let's see what the data says. And what do we have to do to, what do we have to do to increase sales 10%? Do we have to add salespeople? Do we have to do additional marketing? Um, yeah, from a, from me, from my perspective as a finance perspective, to do one projection is almost malpractice because there could be a scenario that we can't envision that just, and it's happened in aerospace, right? Where all of a sudden everything's down 40% for some extra, um, ordinary, unpredictable thing. And to have a scenario at least built in, hey, if we had an external thing and everything's down 40%, what do we do? Well, you know, it's the old buy real estate 
you know, it's going to go up because they're not making more of it. Well, that was probably a good theory in 2002 when the market was trending up. It was a horrible theory in 2007, right before it crashed. So there's your, you know, your data versus, you know, gut feel type scenario. But it's also with the underlying risk. So you can buy land. It's one thing when you buy it with cash and you're unlevered. It's another thing when you're fully levered that that changes it. And the same on the business side. You can try to increase sales 17%. Now, are you all in and leveraged and there's no room for error? Or do you, do you have the ability, capabilities that what happens if there's an external shock? What do you do? And that's always the key. That's always the key point. How do you, you know, how do you, how do you manage for that external shock? You know, the airlines never saw 9-11 coming. You couldn't see it coming. And, you know, their business was, you know, businesses were decimated. The home builders never saw it. Well, they probably did see the, the, the bubble in real estate coming, but many of them didn't, you know, adjust for it. So, yeah, once again, it's, 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 uh, you know, looking at all the different scenarios and putting data to them and seeing where you, where you come up. Going back to you know, go back to that leadership thing. You work with a lot of different companies. Are, are are companies are they teaching leadership enough? Or are they just teaching you know make more make more money, make more widgets, make profits, etc. Yeah, they're seeing the the bigger productivity gains are being realized by the bigger companies, and they have the resource and that oftentimes can leverage what they're doing, and they seeing that learning is a there's a there's a real return on investment to learning the smaller you get as a company the more expensive it is to take somebody you know out of out of um service to for have them um to develop their skills but you actually have a bigger return on it and so it's it's flipped and typically you get more of that you get more of the access to it in a larger company. I mean, 25 years ago when I got out of school, I got advice of go work for a bigger company. They'll train you. And they were right. I got a lot of good training that I wouldn't have gotten at a smaller company. And so the more enlightened companies, and and again, in today's age, we can access so much stuff now through, through YouTube and through, these resources that are online that don't require us to go travel and sit in a hotel um, boardroom for three days. I mean, we can, we can learn on our own time as we go and in a way that's more conducive for us actually to be able to soak it in. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, I never really thought about that. You know, I always thought about, you know, you, you talk about you know, leadership development. And I think, you know, GE in their Crotonville facility, I mean, you know, GE has produced more great business leaders than, you know, the other Fortune 500 companies combined. I mean, it's, you know, you can, you can name, you know. But, but yet they, they still ran into trouble. They still ran, they still ran into trouble. And, and, and that's an interesting, you know, the interesting thing there is I don't, you know, I was, I was talking with a guy at GE, he's, a lead, he's actually a, a business leader. And I said, look, your background is great. And he's like, yeah, but my fear is now I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be branded. You know, they, they, you know, the company at the top ran into trouble, but they continue to produce good leaders. I'm like, yeah, that's a good point. But I never really thought about, you know, hey, look, YouTube, you know, companies could literally put together a, 
syllabus of YouTube videos um, or a, an online curriculum and sort of hand it to their you know, hand it to their executives and say, look, we want to we want to develop you and here's some tools to get you started and and we'll help you along the way. And there, those tools are growing by by the quarter on what's available out there, and but it's it takes it takes conscious thought in terms of hey what what would be beneficial depending on the company and its structure, but I've seen it um, in aerospace. I can think of one in particular, and it was 15 years ago, and they they were facing a real difficult challenge, but they implemented lean. They did a lot of training. They had they had the whole manufacturing facility up there going through lean and taking time out when they had millions of dollars of inventory stuck in the in the process. But it took the time, but then they got a huge return on the investment. And now you don't you can do that in a more distributed manner and not as disruptive. It, to, 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 to educate your workforce throughout it is not, it doesn't have, you don't have people go sitting in classrooms for big blocks of time. Yeah. You can, you can do it, they can do it at home. And in smaller companies, and now to give a, a tablet, a computer, I had another um, guy in my company and he built up a food company. And 15 years ago, 20 years ago, he gave out laptops to his line workers so that they could better understand computers and let them take them home. And it had a huge impact. And, you know, nowadays, computing power is a lot cheaper, a lot more accessible for people. You know, and that just is something right there that, you know, you think it's so simple. But, you know, quite frankly, it's, it's a very simple solution. But, um, you know, very few people think about it. They think they got to get so involved and make it complicated. You're like, hey, look, you know, go home and read some, you know, watch some YouTube videos. Let's make sure we're all on the same, the same. Well, thing. but it, it get, it's got to come from the top about what's important mm -hmm. right now for this company. How are we going to succeed? And as the leadership team has a clear uh, answer to that and can, and, and then it can, it can go down throughout the company and that people within the company, Hey, if this is important, what do we need to do to train train our line people in order to be successful at that? But if there's no answer, if there's nothing to align their actions with, then yeah, someone wants to do and the department wants to do training on checklists, but you know, the leadership team doesn't see how that really focuses on what they think is important. You get the pushback, right? Versus Hey, this is the direction we're going in. This is what's important. That makes it a lot easier to to get training improved, to bring it up, to feel safe. And hey, this is the direction you gave us. These are the answers that you want us to go in this direction. So this is what we think. They're, they're a lot more empowered to do that when there are clear answers. Yeah, you know, and, and I like the clear answer. I like the clear answer point you talked about. It, you know, I remember it, it, when I first joined Gulfstream Aircraft and. It was 1995, the summer of 1995. And the, com the company had been distressed. They made big bets on the Gulfstream 5, the new product. And it was a make or break scenario. And the president, one of the presidents, of the, the four-person management team, one of the presidents was a guy named Bill Boister. And Bill was a very direct, clear guy. And he sat there and said, hey, look, here's our mission. Here's where we're going. You're either in or you're out. There's no ambiguity. 
And you looked at him and he was kind of a, you, you, you know, a lot of people go, hey, look, you know, he's kind of a jerk. And he probably was kind of a jerk. But at the end of the day, at least you knew where he was coming from. And you look at Gulfstream today, it's probably one of the most successful aerospace companies in the world. And it's certainly one of the best turnarounds you've ever you've ever seen. And I think it was that that lack of ambiguity as to the direction the company was going. Well, it gets similar to um, Ford and an American icon and Alan Mullally, who came out of aerospace, that he gave a direction. It was clear. You know, this is the direction we're going in. This is what's important. And if you want to be part of the team, then you got to buy into it. And and it there is there people they don't fight fight it when it's clear. If if they know they're constantly going to be fighting it, it's going to be painful. It's a lot easier to leave. And in in the book about Malayli, American Icon, he didn't feel like he was going to have to fire people. He thought they'd self select out. Now he did it with a smile. It sounds like a little different style than than the Gulfstream example, but it had the desired effects. Yeah, well, that's the whole thing. It's, hey, look, here's where we're going. If you don't want to do it, let's just part ways. We'll be friends and, you know, we'll meet at a trade show one day. And and, and I'm okay with that. And, and that's, I think that's a big, you know, uh, you, get on LinkedIn, uh, you get on LinkedIn and you see a lot of writings about, you know, keeping employees happy and they're, they're, they're happy when they're engaged and promoted and disciplined and, you know, all the you know, all the, all the nice things, but I, I think being kind to an employee is also picking the right time to tell them that it might be time for them to move on. Well, it's given that open feedback in terms of, Hey, here's, here's what I see. And is it something that's adjustable or not? And, and being open about it and not just waiting for a one year review, but having that ongoing dialogue that um, they can see whether or not it's a match. And, and that's one, and well, there's a tool out there called the People Analyzer in uh, the EOS system. It basically takes core values and you, and you identify whether or not people show up working within those core values on a, on a regular basis. But when you share that with people and when they share it as a group and people can see how they're showing up, it, they either wanna adjust or they wanna leave. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. And I think the annual review, you know, at, at, uh, the annual review is a dead tool. You know, well, it's, it's a lawsuit waiting. To ha- I mean, it's just it, the only people that I think really enjoy it are, are uh, plaintiff's attorneys, right? On the employment side, because, hey, you wrote this and six months ago and then you did this. Somehow or another, I got, I got emailing, you know, Susie Welch and I got emailing each other. And she was talking about the annual review, you know, like, you know, give yourself a big Christmas present, ask your, ask your boss for an annual review. And I, I was, I was sort of horrified. I wrote her back. I'm like, that's like the dumbest advice I've ever heard. You know, a review should be, uh, you should be getting a review every day. You know, every, you know, constant feedback is a review. People know when they're doing well. People know when they're not. Um, you know, Bosses understand, you know, they know when their people are engaged. They know when they're not. They know when they they understand the direction. Um, you know, if, it, if it's a once a year deal, I'm like, holy cow, that was so 1961 that uh, I don't know how you function that way anymore. But it also put, it, it puts too much emphasis, right, on 
what just happened versus the body of work and what's what is the the contribution the overall contribution of of the person i mean they shouldn't be surprised of what comes out in in when you finally talk about comp on an annual basis we've been talking about this right and it, it shouldn't be a surprise but how many of them are oh it's it's horrible and then you know then you you know it's like all of a sudden you you know hey i got my review today and you know the uh the ill, the ill feelings and the the distress, and then you know, I, I think those things do so much damage. Um, and that's the one thing companies should really talk about. Hey, look, constant feedback to your people is a huge benefit to everybody. Imagine it, you know, families. If you know, the family scenario to that is, you know, you wait for a year to tell your kid how they're doing, uh, and all the scenarios I've heard on, on marriages. This is when one partner holds something back for a long time and then just finally lets it all out. That rarely goes well. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, no doubt. Uh, as many marriage counselors will uh, will tell you, right? Yeah, and it's and it's the ones that are kind of sometimes it's more you know, they 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 having that give and take. You know, they find a way to make it work versus the ones like, oh, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. Boom. <laughs> I'm laughing. I can see that. I, I can see that happening now, and you see it in the boardroom too. But you know, but that's the way the military. You know, the military is, you know, the once a year officer review, and it comes out to, hey, am I going to get promoted? I don't know. I'll figure it out next year when I get my review. And then the military but, wonders why it loses so many good. good but look at good yeah, officers. look at the spots within the military that work. And if you take, you mentioned the Navy SEALs earlier. There's constant feedback. They go and do a mission, even a practice mission. They go and analyze it, and they have an autopsy, and they tear it apart so they can get better at it. Yep. And, and that failures are learned. Failures are nothing more than learning tools. And it's hey, look, we didn't do too good on this. Here's why. You know, let's go practice it again, and that's okay. So yeah, and it, it built. It builds. You can build on it versus. Yeah, you know, it's not. It's not real. It's just like. It's hard to predict the future. It's not realistic that hey, everything's going to go according to plan. There's more evidence that it's not. So what are you going to do about it? Well, I mean, hey, look, there's always there was that term semper gumby, you know, always flexible. And you know, every plan is going to get destroyed ten minutes into it. And no matter if it's a business plan or a military plan or a you know, family plan or whatever, ten minutes into it, something's going to go wrong. Something's going to go different. There's that need to flex. And the need to be flexible has always got to be there. But uh, so, you know, we, we're coming up on, we're coming up on kind of an hour into this and been a great, you know, as you, as you look at companies and organizations and, you know, people are switching jobs, what, you know, what's uh what's the one question an executive should be asking himself or a potential employer so that they're not walking into the biggest mistake of their life? Is there one? Is there one thing? Yeah, I would. I would ask them. There's, and I'm going to borrow from Patrick Lencioni, and he has five dysfunction of the team. But he wrote a book called The Advantage, which was you know his premise was the only competitive advantage nowadays is having organizations that are truly aligned and on the same page, because things are changing so fast. They got to be able to coordinate their actions. 
And he had six questions and I boil it down to a couple of them. One I always like to ask is what is most important right now? Because if you ask that question to different leaders within an organization and you would get even slightly different answers, let alone um, diametrically opposed answers, they're going to get, you got, you're just rife for conflict because they're going to be in meetings with different premises about what's the most important thing. And they're going to go back to their office thinking, hey, this is the most important thing. And someone else on the other side and is thinking it's the opposite or slightly different. And that's, that pulls apart a company. It comes out in emails. It comes out in meetings. And you bring it home with you. And so I would ask that question more than any other. And uh, the other one being, how will we succeed? What's really essential for our success? Because then again, you can see the different answers and whether or not there's a gap between them. So you're going for an interview, six questions to ask. Yeah, I wouldn't ask six. I'd keep it to one or two because it's it's tough for, um, from a, just a time perspective. Sure. I'd rather go deeper on one or two, even just one, but really one, see if they've thought about it. You know, if there's nothing there on one, you go to two and there's, they haven't really thought about it and, and you're getting to, you know, the core values of the company, how should they behave and there's still nothing there. It's kind of like you're getting your red flags. You know, if a company's really well thought out, they're going to walk you through what's most important in detail. And that's a pretty good sign. And and then when it, if does it match up with the other one, the other, what the other people are are thinking and seeing. And how does a great leader, how does a great leader ensure that his team always understands what's most important now? I think it's always being open to, uh, what's going on. And I referenced John Boyd earlier, and he came up with this OODA loop. We observe, orient, decide, and act. And whoever does that the quickest and most effectively tends to win. And so the leader that's always looking for what's going on, observing it, orienting himself to that, deciding what to do, and acting with the best information from his team is more likely to win. Awesome. Hey, thanks for, uh, thanks for being here today. It's been, it's been great. I love the, uh, I love the dialogue. How do, uh, how do people get a hold of you? Sure. They can go to confidentroi.com and there's a, they can connect with me there as well as on LinkedIn, Alex Vorobiev, or on my uh, website, alexvorobiev.com. Awesome. Hey, thanks for uh, thanks for coming today. Let's be uh, let's be sure to stay in touch and do this one uh, do this one again. A lot of a uh, lot of good points we could probably talk about all day long. Quite frankly, no, it's fun. It's a lot of aerospace. Uh, it's a lot to talk about in aerospace. So anytime. Awesome, Alex. Hey, thanks very much. Enjoy your day out west. Yeah.